hello again or hello for the first time welcome to not just yoga episode 19 which also marks one whole year since my very first episode this podcast started off as an idea to promote my yoga business and also to try and remove some of the stereotypes attached to yoga teachers Uh, you can listen to more about that in previous episodes and to promote the idea that everyone is welcome in my classes. Also, being in lockdown meant I had more time. So while I do possibly have material for a few more episodes, I think it may be reaching a natural stopping point in the not-so-distant future. But for now, we have this episode, and I'll actually be talking about yoga for the next segment Rather than sticking to the two parts of the last few episodes, which were home yoga practice and yoga in the news or the outside world, I'm going to be talking about questions that you may have but be too afraid to ask. Now, I like to think I've created an environment in my classes where people aren't afraid to ask questions, but if you haven't been to one of my classes then you won't be aware of this. I've tried to focus on the main ones that either people have asked in the past or questions I wanted to know the answer to when I started. So when I first started to attend yoga classes, there were certain things that were not always explained and weren't instinctive and there were quite often a little bit of confusion, mainly on my part. So after thinking about what I would have liked to know and things that other people have said to me and from experience. So I'm going to answer seven different questions that I've come across in the past one way or another. First question, what is namaste? What does it mean? Why do we say it? Okay, that might be three questions in one, but you get my point. I've already briefly mentioned this in episode 10 of the podcast. It basically means greetings to you. There's also another interpretation. The light in me honours the light in you. As I previously stated, I see it as equality. In a yoga class, people aren't better than others. They just practice in a different way. I say this word just once at the end of each class as a way of acknowledging the yoga practice we've just shared. Other yoga teachers will have a wide range of ideas, thoughts and viewpoints on this. That's just mine. So question two, why are there different names for the same poses? A simple explanation is it depends on the style of yoga and the audience. For example, when I teach children's yoga, I tend to use universally recognised names, usually linked to an animal, or something they will identify with, such as downward facing dog. It's much easier for a seven year old to understand, make a triangle shape or an upside down V than to say, now come into Ardha Mukha Svanasana. Even with that example, I used both the English and Sanskrit terms. I will sometimes add in the Sanskrit in class, but only if it feels appropriate or if people ask, which many don't as they're too busy focusing on what they're physically doing. As for the style of yoga, yin uses different names for the same poses in hatha. A quick aside, yin is a slow-paced, more static style of yoga, 
while a yang based practice is more dynamic and there's more movement from one pose to the other. The idea is that by shifting the name of the pose, your intention of the pose shifts to the focus of poses in a yang practice is often to engage the muscles and stretch them whereas in a yin practice we relax the muscles and tend to focus on the joints and deep tissue. Question number three, what if I make a noise? Now the human body is capable of making many noises and can be extremely unpredictable at times. If your body decides to emit an involuntary noise just accept it and carry on. In fact if I hear snoring during relaxation at least I know you're relaxed. Additionally, as I've said before, I hope that I've created a welcoming, safe environment in my classes where people aren't embarrassed by their bodies, whether they make noises or not. Number four, what is a sankalpa and do I need to have one? A sankalpa is a positive intention. It's usually set in the present tense as something you are or feel. Some examples here are, I feel calm. I am aware, I listen to my body, I act with intention. I mean, the list is endless. You know, you you can make them up. There are pre-existing ones already out there, hundreds of them. For the majority of my classes, I invite people to repeat their own Sankalpa three times in their head. And I think that bit is really important about it being in your head for two reasons. One, it's nothing to do with anybody else. And two, in one of my very first classes I went to, this is one of the things that was not explained to me. Now, never wanting to be the first to speak up or stand out when the teacher said, repeat it to yourself three times, I expected to hear all this muttering, but of course I've since learned otherwise. Just going back to not wanting to speak first or stand out, I know it sounds at odds with what I do, But believe me, the nerves and anxiety I sometimes get when I'm teaching are very real. I don't like being looked at. Yes, the person with bright red curly hair doesn't like to stand out. I'd rather sit in the corner with a book. I mean, Mark used to sing and play guitar on stage. Something like that. The idea of that just fills me with dread. Whenever we go somewhere, I always like us to sit close to the toilets if we can. So I don't have to walk past lots of people. Anyway, getting off track. Um, I sound odd enough as it is. Question number five. Can I ask questions? Yes, of course, because how else will you learn? I'm very against the idea of silent yoga classes. Yes, I realise there is a time and a place for them, but Tuesday and Thursday evenings, as well as Friday mornings, are not those times and places for me. I also realise that some people won't be comfortable with asking questions in class in front of others so I always encourage emails or messages if that's what they prefer. However people have asked questions in class before and I'm glad that they not only felt comfortable enough to do so but also showed that they were really engaged in the practice and with what their bodies were doing. I had a lady called Sam that came to many of my classes and she used to ask questions such as you know where should I be feeling the stretch and how was it supposed to feel I've got a lady who's been coming to my classes for quite a while now Bev and she asks a variety of questions in order to expand her knowledge of what's going on in certain poses or movements and 
I before I did this podcast, I spoke to these people and, and said, you know, do you mind if I use your names? So these aren't just made up names, these are real people. I welcome all types of questions in my class. And if I don't know the answer, because we don't know the answer to everything all the time, do we? Be honest. I do try and find out. I suppose it's a bit like homework, really. Question six. Why do I need a mat? Well, firstly, it provides a stable, non-slip base on which you can practice. The material used for yoga mats prevents your hands and feet from slipping during your yoga practice. After all, I'm not sure that many of us want to end up doing involuntary splits. Quick note, I've seen a rise in the popularity of bedtime practices, but the majority of these positions are either seated or lying down, no headstands. I was recently asked by Richard from Archery Geek Outdoors, in his words, what's the difference between a 10 quid yoga mat and a 200 quid one? And my reply was, nothing. Yes, I know there are differences, which I'll get into in a moment. But if your mat stops you from slipping and sliding, that's all you need. Interestingly, the most expensive one I'd seen up until this point was £140. Yeah, one four zero. I decided to take another look and one of the first ones that came up was, wait for it, £200. It was advertised as an eco-friendly plant-based yoga mat with a logo. Now, come on, who seriously has this much money to spend? I know I don't. Now, I do own what I would call a luxury mat, but there is a reason for this. It was my leaving present from teaching, and I am extremely grateful for it. There is no way I could have justified spending that amount of money on something myself which is also the reason why I don't own a yoga mat with dinosaurs on them. Yes, you can get them, I've checked. During my yoga teacher training, we were asked to bring a mat along and draw our own alignment lines on it, such as where our toes would reach to. So I got my blue sharpie out and did exactly that. Three different people commented, oh no, you're drawing on your nice mat, etc. And, and not etc. 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 Not ect. Just one of my little bugbears. It's a mat. It's a tool or resource that's meant to help me. Has it affected how I use it? No. Does it affect my practice? No. And that's what I encourage other people to do. Going back to the position of downward dog. Think about where your hands and feet are. And if you don't know what position I'm talking about, just Google it. It should come up straight away. Over time, this position will change. Yes, you may be able to feel the difference, but some like to see it too. Your mat is yours. Draw on it if you want to. Use it. So maybe that question should have been, not so much why do I need a mat, but what's the difference in yoga mats? Anyway, moving on to our last question, question seven. What happens if I can't do a pose? Now, believe it or not, yoga is non-competitive. Just because someone in front of you is able to execute what seems like the perfect downward dog or triangle or warrior two, the actual perfect pose is the one that is right for you. If you need props such as blocks, cushions or a strap, use them. Alternatively, if a certain pose really isn't for you, the teacher will provide an alternative. That's what they're there for. 
that was part of their training. Don't force your body to do something it doesn't want to do. They're just my answers. Ask another yoga teacher, they'll probably give you slightly different answers. And if you do have any questions that you'd like answering, and it wasn't one of those seven questions, then you know what to do, get in touch. As I said earlier, and as I've repeatedly said in other episodes, yoga should be available to everyone. And you do not have to change your whole way of life in order to incorporate yoga into it. Furthermore, there are many other aspects of my life that are non-yoga related, and this is why I have the eyes, ears, seen and being part of the podcast. Yes, I know listening to what someone has recently read or watched on the telly may not be in high demand, but it's just a way of promoting the idea that I'm the same as the next person, although there's always the argument on who that next person is. And I appreciate that there are teachers out there who will only ever show the yoga side of their lives, which is fine, but it's not me. Eyes, ears, seen and been. Starting with the eyes and reading my self-imposed book challenges. Spain is my chosen country for October. I've read a children's version of Don Quixote. I had this book from when I taught a year four class and Spain was our topic for the term. We have got the full adult version on the bookshelf but it will definitely take me more than a month to read that. Don Quixote is a bizarre character. This book is often referred to as the first modern novel and many do consider it to be one of the greatest works ever written. I can't really comment on that because I haven't read the full version yet. The main character, Don Quixote, not Quixote, reads so many books about chivalry and romance that he decides to become a knight errant and revive chivalry to how it should be in society. He ropes in farmer Sancho Panza as his squire and Don Quixote doesn't really see the world as others do. For example, thinking that windmills were giants that he needed to fight uh, and a wizard had put a spell on them. I vividly remember one child in my class, upon hearing this, decide that he was a bit mad, wasn't he, miss? And yeah, I suppose he was. While we're on the subject of chivalry, something else, or someone else, I discovered was Captain Alatriste, or Alatriste, not really sure how it's pronounced. If you've spoken to me in the last few weeks, no doubt I will have told you how much I am enjoying these books. There are seven books in the series by Arturo Perez Reverte, and I've read the first two so far. They're centred around the adventures of a Spanish soldier and man of fortune living in the 17th century. The stories are told from the point of view of his squire. When I saw it labelled as the Spanish Musketeer, I knew I had to give it a go. And that's the great thing about these reading challenges. I've read some brilliant books that I probably would never have even heard of. So... Captain Alatriste, he tries to do the right thing, it doesn't always go to plan, he rescues women in distress and now in modern society women are expected to fend for themselves and they are more than capable of doing so but reading this story again set in the 17th century it was a different time then and I think I've definitely found my favourite genre of books to read all about swords and swashbuckling. As I've done in the past, I'm going to link eyes and ears together because I've been listening to, rather than reading, uh, Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. Many years ago, I read Fighting in Spain, which is an abridged version of it. 
I'm currently listening to the audiobook version on YouTube, which is an official version, and it's read by Patrick Tull. His narration of this book is fantastic, and I'll be sad when it's ended, really. Along with Stephen Fry and Jonathan Keeble, who has also narrated several Bernard Cornwell books, he's now in my top three of narrators. I've also found a new podcast to listen to called Not Just the Tudors, Professor Susanna Lipscomb talks to various people about a wide range of subjects, including Shakespeare, Aztecs, witches, and so on. It's fascinating. I've become quite addicted to it. Now for the scene part. Let's start with the best. James Bond, No Time to Die. I've recorded a separate section about the film. There's no major spoilers, but there is a little heads up to mute for 30 seconds or so if you don't want to even have an inkling of it. James Bond is somewhat of a British institution. Over the years, there have been many incarnations of the British spy. Everyone's got a favourite Bond, or most people have got one anyway. Mine was always Sean Connery, and when Daniel Craig was cast, I wasn't convinced it would work, but I'd probably say he's my top choice now. His first outing as Bond in Casino Royale is the one I like the most, but we thought Quantum of Solace, the next one, was a real downturn, so it put us off watching his others. Several years ago, we did watch all of the James Bond films, and I suppose they are comforting in a way, as they follow the same format, and you know what to expect. The first James Bond film I ever saw was The Man with the Golden Gun. It was a Saturday night when I was staying at my nan and granddad's. I hadn't got a clue what was going on, probably, I just knew that James Bond was the good guy and there was some fighting. I'm not going to go into detail as I don't want to risk annoying Alan Partridge and getting Bond wrong. His description of the spy who loved me is amazing by the way, look it up. We went to see James Bond at the cinema. can't remember the last time I went to the cinema, a few years ago. Uh, possibly to see Downton Abbey. Anyway, Gary from The Silver Hedgehog had organised this private screening where his logo came up on screen and he got some family members and some friends together and we all went, we had the whole screen to ourselves. It's one of the best films I have seen in years. I was a bit unsure about what to expect but I don't want to give away any spoilers but for the next 30 seconds, don't listen, okay? So, starting now I cried I'm not ashamed to admit that I cried at James Bond usually I only cry when there's animals involved there were no animals involved by the way but I just I just couldn't help it I'd love to go and see it again and I'm sure it'll come on Netflix at some point and on the telly so no doubt I'll be watching it again if you haven't watched it I'd highly recommend it For the rest of the scene part, I decided to split it into three. So I'm going to start with The Good. And one film that we watched was called All at Sea. It's got Brian Cox, the actor, not the physicist. And it's about an old sailor who wants to bury his sailor pal at sea. And yeah, had to do a few things, not strictly by the book, in order to make this happen. Good film, great story, excellent acting. Definitely worth 90 minutes. Another one on the good list, although it should probably be the odd list, is Twin Peaks, the original series. 
I'm not even going to try and explain what Twin Peaks is. If you've seen it, you'll understand why. If you haven't seen it, just try reading up about it or watching the first few episodes. It's odd and I'll leave it at that. As things are very predictable in the Brownridge household, we've been watching Sharp again. At the time of recording this, we've got one episode left to watch, Sharp's Waterloo, because the other two don't count, they're just not as good. One more for the good list, Attack of the Hollywood Clichés, presented by Rob Lowe. Just under an hour long, he talks about all the tropes and clichés used in films. Some of these were obvious, such as car chases, jump scares, maverick cops and montages. There was also a bit that I remember, whenever anybody goes grocery shopping, because it's called grocery shopping, not food shopping in America, there's always a baguette sticking out the top of the bag and I never really gave that a second thought before but he's right there is going back to the montages bit we all know one of the most famous montages in film is Rocky so here's a bit of information that I found out about uh, the Rocky films or mainly Rocky 4 the Rocky training sequences are apparently described as the gold standard of training sequences by Rocky 4 31.9% of its running time was montage. That's almost a third of the film. And the rest was mainly him hitting someone, according to Rob Lowe. And he's correct. During the second half of the film, so we're still on about Rocky Four, or the last 50 minutes, it's approximately 50% montage. And my short attention span is probably the reason why it's one of my all-time favourites, because you've just got little snippets that you need to focus on. Now, those things that are on the bad list. A new season of, now I say dynasty, but they say dynasty. It's my guilty pleasure. It's not the 80s one, it's the remake. And it's trashy American telly about rich people. Now, let's just get one thing straight. I do not like reality TV. So any of that real housewives of wherever, definitely not for me. But... Things like this, where it's just completely fictional. I just, I can't get enough of it. I've also been watching the Halloween sequels. I watched number three, Season of the Witch. Number four and number five. Oh, they're just, they're not very good, are they? The first Halloween, the original, was great. but And the second one was alright as well. But these sequels, there's just no need for them, really. It doesn't stop me watching them now. And then the ugly. Oh my. We watched a film. It was my choice. <laughs> we watched a film called The Bat. It was awful. Truly, truly bad. Even Vincent Price couldn't save it. I don't really want to spend a lot of time discussing it because it really was a bad film. I can't recall anything good about it. I think the one good thing the special effects or special defects as mark calls them made us laugh don't think that was the intention but yeah don't watch it and now places we've been certainly different to a year ago when you weren't really allowed to go anywhere we've been to hawkstone follies which is where they recorded some of the original chronicles of narnia namely the lion the witch and the wardrobe it's a beautiful place lots of nooks and crannies to explore but it's also quite steep and hilly in places and it's extremely dark in the caves. We also saw another folly at Shugborough 
it's just a shame to see graffiti etched into these structures but Mark pointed out that in a way it adds to the history of it and I suppose it does especially when they include dates of when they did it. The mindfulness practice that I'm going to share with you is from Mindfulness for Dummies by Shamash Aladina. So to start with decide for how long you're going to practice. So it might be five minutes, might be ten minutes and you also need to choose where to practice. The first time you try it practice walking very slowly so maybe even just in a quiet room at home might be the best option then stand upright with stability gently lean to the left and right forwards and backwards and find a central balanced standing posture let your knees unlock slightly and soften any unnecessary tension in your face allow your arms to hang naturally by your sides Ensure that your body's grounded, like a tree, firmly rooted to the ground with dignity and poise. Then become aware of your breath. Come into contact with the flow of each inhale and exhale. Now slowly lean onto your left foot and notice how your sensations change. Then slowly shift your weight onto your right foot. Again, perceive how the sensations fluctuate from moment to moment. When you're ready, gradually shift most of your weight onto your left foot so that almost no weight is on the right foot. Slowly take your right heel off the ground. Pause for a moment here. Notice the sense of anticipation about something as basic as taking a step. Now lift your right foot off the ground and place it heel first in front of you. Become aware of the weight of your body shifting from the left to the right foot. Continue gradually to place the rest of the right foot flat and firmly on the ground. Notice the weight continue to shift from left to right. Continue to walk in this very slow, mindful way for as long as you want. And the last thing I'm going to leave you with is, as usual, my contact details. So if you do have any questions or ideas, then you can get in touch at sayyestoyoga.hotmail.com or you can visit the website www.sayyestoyoga.co.uk you can find me on Facebook under Say Yes to Yoga or you can find me on Instagram at Curly Girl Yogini. Thanks for listening. Bye.